Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us for part two of the study, What Can We Learn from a Donkey? That's right. We're learning from the story of a donkey from that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. Before we dive into that story, that part two of that message, I've been going through 21 days of fasting. And I don't say this to brag. I just say this to say I want to share some things that I've learned as a result of fasting. There's a book that I've been reading that goes along with the 21 days of fasting that I've been doing. And it's called 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. It's talking about how you can have a spiritual breakthrough as a result of fasting And uh, the book was written by Gary Rohrmeyer. So you can pick up a copy through Amazon. And it's not that expensive. It's just a short little book of 21 days worth of reading. And uh, it has helped me immensely. One of the things I have learned as I have spent some time fasting, I was able to read the testimony of Bill Bright. Bill Bright said he believed that fasting and the power of prayer was a spiritual atomic bomb that our Lord has given to us to destroy strongholds in our lives. And he felt like there was this urgency to call upon the Lord to send a great revival. So in the spring and summer of 1994, he spent some time doing a 40-day fast, praying for revival in America and the fulfillment of the Great Commission in obedience to the Lord's command. Bill Wright writes, As I began my fast, I was not sure I could continue for 40 days, but my confidence was in the Lord to help me reach each day and to be in His presence, and it encouraged me to continue. The longer I fasted, the more I sensed the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit refreshing my soul and my spirit, and I experienced joy, the joy of the Lord, as I had seldomly faced before. Our critical truths began to leap from the pages of God's Word. My faith soared as I humbled myself and cried out to God and rejoiced in His presence. Well, did that fasting change anything. Well, in the six years following that fast, millions of people came to a saving knowledge of Christ, and Bill Bright's life was forever changed. He wrote four spiritual laws that are still used today by many to share the gospel. As a matter of fact, it was one of the very first soul winning courses I ever took when I began learning how to share the gospel. You know, one of my professors, while I was a student at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, Albert Towns, Albert Towns is well into his 80s now, and Albert Towns said this, Fasting involves focusing on our choices instead of our foods and praying our decisions through to successful conclusion. Now, this type of fast helps us to receive God's wisdom in order to make our decisions. This type of fast is not for every minor decision in life, such as where I should go for lunch. It's not for minor purchases. This kind of a fast is a discerning fast, and it offers us wisdom. It offers us direction in life-changing choices. You see, fasting brings more light into the application of good decisions, and it makes us better at making good decisions. You see, right now, I'm fasting to see souls saved, and I'm fasting to see lives to be filled with godly direction. You know, as our church fasted together, There was times that we were struggling, right? Because it's difficult. But I've received emails and I've received text messages and encouraging notes of what the Lord has done during this time of fasting. So maybe you want to consider doing a fast. 
the fast that I'm doing right now is not a fast with no food. It's a fast where I've eliminated all sugar. I've eliminated all sodas. And the only sugar I will take is sugar that is found in a natural food, like in fruits and, and in vegetables. But on that, no sugar. I've eliminated breads and yeast because bread turns quickly into sugar. So I've eliminated all those things and I've learned a whole new sense of who God is and how he is moving. As a matter of fact, it was in the middle of this fast that I began looking into this life of a donkey, this wonderful illustration of what we can learn from a donkey as I was studying for our Palm Sunday celebration. The first thing that we learn is an attitude of being accessible. All four gospel accounts record what happened on Palm Sunday. So we're going to look at all four accounts. Mark's account reminds us that the donkey was only going to be used temporarily, but the donkey had an attitude of being willing to be used. He was accessible. When the disciples came to untie him, he didn't resist. Uh, He didn't start braying. He just went with them. He knew he had a task to accomplish, so he just followed through and completed that task. The second thing that we are going to learn from this donkey is the fact that he had a behavior, that of being available. We're going to look at Matthew's account, verses 6 and 7. It says that the disciples went, did as Jesus had instructed them. But they brought the donkey, and they brought the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. You see, as we look at this, when Jesus is going to come the second time, uh, he's going to appear in his glory, and he's going to enter into Jerusalem again as a mighty warrior. But this first time, he enters into Jerusalem, and it's with meekness, not majesty, and mercy to work toward our salvation. As meekness is outwardly displayed, uh, he is living in poverty. He has chosen to become poor for our sake. And as we look at this triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, uh, we discover that he is bringing in a whole different mindset. All the trappings that we would expect when a king comes into a city is missing. Now, the chief priests and the elders as they see what is happening. Even though Jesus comes in with humility, they are filled with jealousy. They didn't join in in honoring him. In fact, they were scheming. They were trying to figure out how they could eradicate Jesus. And so the next seven days following Palm Sunday, there is a lot of Bible verses that cover the seven last days of the life of Christ. That's why we call that the holiest week of the year on the calendar. And so we see in the middle of the story, this donkey being willing and being willing to do whatever is necessary to bring glory to Christ. And the donkey, in essence, is saying, oh, uh, you need a place to throw some coats? You can use my back. You need a place to ride? Oh, Lord, you can use my back. Whatever you want, of me, I'm available. Are you available for Christ to use you this year? Or are you letting things rob you of your joy, rob you of your availability? 
You know, it's so easy for little things to creep into our lives that just rob us of our joy. Sometimes it's a snide comment by somebody. Sometimes it's a setback in our lives. And sometimes it's just the pure evil of our world today. You see, the Pharisees were ticked off that Jesus was coming into the holy city because it was robbing from them the glory they thought they should have. So many things can come into our lives to steal the joy. When I think about Easter, Easter and Christmas, some would say have been extremely commercialized. I mean, you think about all the flowers and all the candies and all the uh, cards and and all the things that are purchased around Easter and, and Christmas. It, it's just pretty unbelievable. I mean, candy companies make a lot of money selling Easter candy. <laughs> I saw an interesting story in the New York Times just a couple weeks ago. The title or the date of this article is February 15, 2023, and it's entitled, A Thief Steals Nearly 200,000 Cadbury Cream Eggs in Britain, New York. Unbelievable. Well, it was clear that Joby Poole was planning for this year's Easter feast. Uh, But if his snack plans were any indication, it would have been an epic celebration. Uh, That's because police arrested Poole for stealing a tractor trailer containing 200,000 Cadbury Cream Eggs. Uh, The haul was valued at approximately $37,000. As a matter of fact, local police described this heist as a heist of extravaganza. Uh, No pun. Well, yeah, pun intended. (laughs) Uh, The sweet confectionery treats contain a mixture of white and yellow fondant resembling an egg yolk covered by a chocolate shell. And they're always in demand this time of year around Easter. And there's always a very limited supply. Well, please say that Poole broke into the industrial unit and drove off with the goods in a stolen tractor-trailer unit. Well, you can see that this was an organized matter of crime. You see, you don't just happen to steal a trailer filled with 200,000 Cadbury eggs. You set out to do that. You see, Easter reminds us that Jesus came to give and not to take. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and only to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Wow. We've learned so far that this donkey had an attitude of being accessible. He had a behavior of being available. And then thirdly, we discover that he had a character of being accommodating. You see, it's one thing to be available. It's one thing to be accessible. But will you be accommodating, especially when things are not comfortable, especially when maybe you're facing a time of fear? Well, let's look at John's account of Palm Sunday. John chapter 12, beginning at verse number 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found the young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, Don't be afraid, daughter of Zion. I see your king is coming, 
seated on a donkey's colt. Now, if you are one who has a difficult time getting uncomfortable for Jesus, uh, then you're uh, having problems in that you only want to accommodate yourself, but not so much for him. You see, we don't give him glory, so we get glory. We give him glory because of who he is. We must develop this longtime habit of bringing glory to him. And as a result of that, we are never to be afraid. You see, the Christian life is a disciplined life. And we almost hate to talk about it because so many people think, well, come to Jesus. You have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more setbacks. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll never be lacking. In other words, God only wants to prosper you. He doesn't want you to feel uncomfortable. But when you are one who understands what Christ has done for you, you will accommodate him. You will surrender to him. You will discipline yourself not to make your decisions based upon, is it comfortable or is it uncomfortable? Uh, You know, not too long ago, I had a person come to me and says, well, I'm going to leave the church. And I'm saying, and I said, oh, why are you going to leave the church? So I'm feeling uncomfortable here. And I said, you're leaving because you feel uncomfortable? You know, part of the job of the church is not to comfort you in your sin, but to convict you in your sin. If you're never feeling uncomfortable when God's word is being proclaimed and and you're with God's people, I wonder if you've truly been born again. If you have this fear of being uncomfortable, you will never accommodate God's will in your life. Jesus says, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. In order to not be afraid, there's got to be an element of discipline in our lives. You know, I'm not a super big fan of basketball, but I was looking at an article that talked about the world's best free throw shooter. And this person is not in the NBA. Well, you know, in a game of basketball, a player who is fouled will often have a chance to throw a free shot or two, and it should be one of the easiest plays in sports. I mean, it's direct. You're taking this shot at exactly 15 feet from the rim. You're not guarded by anybody. The conditions are always the same every single time. And so... Right now, if you are following the, uh, the NBA, you discover that, that right now, as the time that I'm recording this broadcast, Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat has the highest free throw percentage in the NBA. He's up to about 95%. But very few players get up to that percentage. The average of even elite players, the best of the best, the average of the top NBA players always falls between 70 and 75% from the foul line. For the past 20 years, uh, this stat has remained the same. So a guy by the name of Larry Silverberg, an engineer in North Carolina, studied the physics of the free throw. Uh, His findings show that a successful free throw has four parameters. Uh, Number one is the speed at which you release the ball. Number two is how straight you shoot it. Number three is the angle that you shoot it at. And then number four would be the amount of backspin. Now, surprisingly, Silversburg says that very little difference between average throwers 
and the best free throw shooters, the average shooters are pretty consistent, but it doesn't seem they get beyond that 75%. Bob Fisher is the man who holds the record for the free throw shooter percentage-wise. He can hit 100 free throws and then a miss one. Uh, so he's about 99%. He has learned. He says, you know, I'm like a million guys. He said, I played basketball in high school. I played recreational till I was 44. He says, I learned in my early 50s. He started practicing over and over and over again, free throws every single day at the local gym. And with a couple of months, he was consistently sinking more than 100 shots in a row. He says it's all about preparation, practice, preparation, practice, preparation, practice, making sure that as I throw that ball, my wrist is straight, making sure that I, as I throw that ball, I'm not trying to do a bank shot. I'm trying to do a straight shot into the hoop, making sure that every time I shoot that ball, I have the same amount of spin on it so that if I happen to be a little bit off, that backspin is on it. So if it hits the rim, it will roll into uh, the basket and not roll out of the basket. By going over and over and over again, he has discovered the secret of throwing free throws. You see, it's not really that difficult. Why is it that all the NBA players don't give that intensity in practicing shooting free throws? Well, the reason is because oftentimes you can play for several games and never have the opportunity to throw a free throw. Because they don't see it as the most important part of the game, uh, they have dismissed it. They don't put the discipline in that is necessary. But when I think about the average believer, if you were to ask me, what is the difference between a good Christian and a great Christian? A Christian that is 99% on and very rarely gets discouraged, very rarely gets defeated. Oh, it's not that they don't have times of discouragement, but they are determined not to quit. Why is there such a high percentage of Christians dropping out? Uh, Why is there such a high percentage of Christians that seem like they're never happy wherever they are? Uh, They're notorious church hoppers. What's up with that? Why is it that they are lacking discipline? Why is it they constantly think that the grass is going to be greener on the other side? Why is the divorce rate in those of faith the same rate as those who are not in the faith? It's because they've lacked discipline. They haven't developed the character of being accommodating to the will of God. And as a result, when the pressure comes, they are filled with fear. You know, when pressure comes, there's two things that can happen to us. We fight or we flee. When we're in a situation where where something is going bad, sometimes the best thing to do is run. Other times you got to stand up and fight. Why is there so little fight in Christians today? Why are they so easily defeated and so easily discouraged when they look at the culture? The reason is, is because they are lacking in their character. Good old-fashioned discipline. Oh, I want to challenge you today. If you will learn to live a disciplined life, you'll be learning to live a holy life. And that is where your strength comes in. You see, that donkey had the character trait of being available. Peter and John, as I mentioned, were probably the ones that went to find that colt. The donkey didn't resist. He was needed, and he says, I'll go. The owner says, "Uh, you can have the donkey. If the Lord needs it, he can have it. That donkey was accommodating. Uh, You need a place to throw your jackets? You can use my back. 
oh, Jesus needs to ride on my back and, and he gets all the praise. That's good. It's all about him anyway. As I think about what was about to happen in the life of Christ, things began to really accelerate the last week of the life of Christ. Uh, we don't know what happens too much after the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday after the triumphal entry, but we begin to, uh, to get a feel for the story as we get into Wednesday, and all four accounts of the gospel record the last week of the life of Christ. In fact, about 28% of the gospels is spent on the last seven days of the life of Christ. We discover that after Jesus leaves the temple on that triumphal entry Sunday, he goes home. In the next couple of days, he, he's kind of nowhere. We're not sure where he is. It's like he's spending time in prayer and in preparation for what is about to happen. On Wednesday, he gathers his disciples together, and he says to them, I long to celebrate Passover with you. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, because Jesus knew when they gathered together for the Passover meal, they're going to be up in the upper room that, that had already been prearranged for this meal. He told his disciples uh, to meet him there, and, and he says, I'm looking forward to this time. And, and the reason that is so kind of odd in our way of thinking is because Jesus, who knows everything, knew at that Passover meal, one of his disciples was going to begin the process of betraying him. So they're in the upper room. It's just a few days uh, before Jesus is going to be crucified. They are there enjoying and celebrating the Passover meal. And then Jesus says something most unusual. He says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. He says, it's the one that is going to dip sop with me. And this is an act that is done during the Passover meal where the bread is dipped into the wine. And as Jesus is doing this, he says, the one who dips up with me, and he actually dips his bread into the wine, and Judas does the same thing at the same time. Now, the rest of the disciples somehow missed this because they all began to say, is it me? Is it going to be me? And then Judas, he slips out. The disciples assume that the Lord sent him to go get something. They have no clue as to what he's about to do. He's about to betray Christ. Jesus finishes up the Passover meal. He goes out in the garden. They sing a song. He goes on a further ahead to pray. Peter, James, and John are with him. They pray. They fall asleep. Jesus wakes them up. They fall back asleep. Jesus wakes them up a second time, and they, they head on back to the garden. And as they're heading back through the garden, Judas and his entourage shows up, and he drops that betrayal kiss on Christ, and he betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. And well, Peter says, I'm going to have nothing of it. He takes out his sword, and, and most believe that he was trying to take off the head of one of the Roman soldiers, a guy by the name of Melchus. He swings that sword, but he misses his head and cuts off his ear. Jesus picks up his ear and puts it back on the soldier's face. Now, at that point, I would have said, we better hold off on this plan uh, to capture this guy. I mean, if he can do this, what else can he do? But they were blinded, and they pursued the capture of Christ. The story really thickens because Jesus goes through three trials, three illegal gatherings, and with a shred of evidence, he is declared guilty. He's beaten 
He's whipped on a cat of nine tails 39 times. He's put on the cross. And, 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 and everybody thinks it's over. On Good Friday from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, there is darkness over the face of the earth. And Jesus utters the final words, It is finished. In other words, he didn't say, I'm finished. It is finished. And he died. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he rose again. I want you to know, because Christ rose again, we have been given new life. We have been given everlasting life. We have been given forgiveness of our sins. And so we ought to be available to serve him any way that he wants us to serve him. We should be having a behavior uh, that is pleasing to him, being available for him to do anything he wants in our lives. And then we ought to have the character that says, I'm going to accommodate God's will for my life. Whatever you want from me, Lord, I'm going to do it. You see, that's the way we live the Christian life. And the bonus that is thrown in, Jesus says that you will not be filled with fear. In other words, you'll be immune to fear because greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. Well, thank you for joining me today. I am praying for you. God bless you. I appreciate you tuning in. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.